In this episode of Julius Baer's True Connections podcast, Callum Brewster speaks with Jared Cohen, technologist, foreign policy expert, and presidential historian about the current geopolitical landscape and how the COVID-19 pandemic may result in a sharp rise in global innovation. Hi, Gerard. It's a real pleasure to speak with you today. Today we're possibly seeing greater polarisation in politics than we have for a very long time. We're seeing governments becoming very internally focused and very self-protecting. In the UK here, we're still living through Brexit, and in the United States, we have a president that's very focused on making America great again and sees overseas issues as possibly problems rather than opportunities. Gerard, with less than six months until the US election, do you see this division between national and international interests increasing? And if so, do you ever see an end to it? First, on the question of polarization, if you look at the history of politics in America, and of course politics in different parts of Europe as well, it's obvious to all of us that polarization is not a new phenomenon. So you ask the question, what's different about today's polarization relative to different chapters of countries being politically divided over the past several decades, even centuries? And I think the biggest difference today is the polarization, at least in America, that you see, I would describe as a shallower polarization than what we've seen in history. So historically, it's been much more vitriolic. So we forget that in the Senate, things were so polarized in 1850 that a senator tried to pull a gun on another senator and shoot him. So literally tried to commit murder on the Senate floor. Used to have brawls in the House of Representatives on a regular basis, including one instance where somebody went from one chamber to another and beat a member of Congress senseless with a cane within an inch of his life. So my point is, This used to happen in a much more brutal way, but what's interesting is historically, despite the fact that politicians would engage in duels and fistfights and hit each other with canes, they were debating issues of tremendous substance, right? So the big substantive issues that were plaguing the nation in the first century was issues related to tariff and states' rights and sectionalism around slavery. And so while things were more polarized, the substantive nature of the debates meant that they were incentivized to resolve them. Whereas if you look at the polarization today, particularly in America, we seem polarized based on shallow labels of Democrat or Republican. And we're not polarized on major issues of substance the way that we have been historically. Now, the problem with that is it lends itself towards quick sound bites. And since we're not as polarized on matters of substance, it feels like there's less of a path to working our way out of it. So we have to figure out a way to address this because what's happening is the noise associated with polarization in America is making our democracy look inefficient. With six months away from the election in the US, do you see that just getting greater? Or do you actually see that polarization will come closer together at some point? I think whenever you have an election on the horizon, as you get closer to that election, the divisions become exacerbated. And that's before you even account for transnational meddling. But all an election is, is a lengthy amplifying moment for all of society's fissures that culminates in a democratic moment on election day. But I think that whatever we see today in terms of divisive politics and polarization is likely going to continue along that trend and probably getting slightly more extreme between now and the election is just the sort of nature of how elections work. And you asked about the international component of this. 
expect a different set of international issues to play into domestic politics that were not as pronounced before. So the issues of U.S. and China are going to play a very significant role in this election around everything from supply chains to which candidate has cozied up to China over the years versus who's taken a tougher line on China. It's going to play into our domestic politics when we start getting into accountability around COVID-19. To me, that's the kind of anchoring issue. It's not going to be Iran. It's not going to be the Middle East. It's not going to be transatlantic relationships. I think the big international issue that's going to find its way into our domestic politics is largely going to be U.S. and China. And I was going to explore a little bit further there. As a political scholar, you know, history, what will history tell us about the global pandemic? Because President Trump is due to pull, hopefully, together the G7 leadership at the White House in the coming weeks. And do you see that as a potential opportunity for leaders to come together to find the global solution and coordinate effort around about a vaccine for the pandemic? Or do you think there will continue to be a blame game? That's occurring just now. It's hard to tell. We're in the early stages of this, right? So if you assume a vaccine is a year or more away, if we're even able to create a vaccine, then we really are in not chapter one of this, but we're in chapter two of what will likely be a long global health crisis, a long global economic crisis, and a long global political crisis. In terms of how this plays out, you asked about history. If you look historically, there's not a great track record in America of presidents handling global pandemics well. During World War One, Woodrow Wilson was faced with Spanish influenza, and he never made a single public statement about it. He essentially engaged in a cover-up from the American people. He accelerated the troop movements from the U.S. to France, knowing full well that large numbers of troops would die in close quarters from the ship transfers by the time they got there. And as a result, you had a significant number of casualties related to Spanish influenza. The number of of soldiers killed by Spanish influenza stateside and in Europe exceeded the number of soldiers killed on the battlefield. And so Woodrow Wilson's example, he's really the first president to deal with a global pandemic, was abysmal. Even Dwight Eisenhower, who by all accounts we revere, when in 1957 he was faced with what was described at the time as Asian flu, he was warned about the severity of it. And he said, you know what, we have a private ecosystem that will take care of the vaccine. They'll make enough of it. Let's let private industry drive this. And then when the outbreak started popping up in places like Kentucky, where there were no vaccines and the commercial market wasn't feeding that need, he very quickly course corrected. Now, in the case of Eisenhower, he was a good general and understood that a long war is made up of many battles. And he left us with that lesson that you can get it wrong out of the gate and course correct along the way. Then you get Gerald Ford in 1976, who by all accounts was seen as overreacting to swine flu. And then finally, with George W. Bush, you have an administration getting this right. He really, coming out of H1N1, really had the savvy to put in place a mechanism to build up America's stockpiles to ready for the next global pandemic. And the Obama administration is different as it was from the Bush administration, gives a lot of credit to the Bush administration for its ability to handle a range of global pandemics from Ebola to Zika to H1N1. So it took us a while as a country to get this right. And I think the problem that we have now is the U.S. is a federal system, right? So a lot of this rests at the states and we have to rely on coordination at the state level. The good news internationally is there's at least a couple forums where the U.S. and China engage with each other around global issues, right? So the G20, the G7, and those mechanisms and those meetings are going to be dominated by COVID-19. And you feel as well as the agenda in relation to the health and 
the vaccine for the world. Do you feel there's an opportunity for us to take lessons from 2008 and the banking crisis because the economic health of the world is under real pressure? You've seen it in Europe, you've seen it in the United States, significant support of business and individuals. Do you feel going forward that that international agenda, although there's been trade friction over the last couple of years, do you feel there's an opportunity for us to put that to one side and try and find a way forward as a global economy, or do you feel there'll still be isolation in national states? I think my optimistic view on this is this global health crisis, this economic crisis, political crisis, it's going to have many chapters. But I think along the way, we're going to sort of discover some new and innovative approaches to multilateralism. Success would be, do we come out of this with a proper global multilateral mode of operation for dealing with the next global pandemic that transcends political systems, transcends geographies, transcends relationships between countries. It's hard to get the entire world to agree on something. It's actually pretty extraordinary that just about every country in the world has engaged in some form of lockdown and social distancing and so forth. And it's actually happened without any kind of global coordination. It's just kind of normatively ended up this way. And so the question now is with so many countries around the world practicing some version of the same thing, is there an opportunity to work together to put the pieces back together? So like, let's take schools as an example. Every country is dealing with how do you reopen schools? There's a lot of opportunity to compare and contrast different approaches that are working or not working. And that's an issue that the G20 is likely to take up. The G20 would have not likely taken up the issue of the future of education. That's something that they're likely going to take on now. And if I can change topic slightly, Jared, your book, The New Digital Age, referenced many changes in civilizations. And with what you're observing just now, what issues and concerns have you identified and what opportunities do you see actually evolving? Yeah, I mean, I think we have to remember that there were a set of issues dominating the international discourse before COVID-19 that are not likely to go away. It's interesting that coming out of COVID-19, the story will be U.S.-China again, but it'll be a different kind of U.S.-China conversation. Before this, we were talking about U.S.-China and the technology race as it pertains to AI, as it pertains to 5G, quantum computing, you name it. All of that rivalry and that technology race doesn't disappear just because of COVID-19. It just adds another layer of complexity. My other observation is if you look at the last paradigm that we came into this with was you basically have two types of systems. You have open systems and you have closed systems. And before COVID-19, what I would have said is it certainly looks like closed societies are having an easier time dealing with the challenges of being closed than open societies are navigating the complexities of being open. This is all the things we understand about just sort of challenges of the information environment. It'll be interesting to see coming out of COVID-19, if you look at the Chinese approach, whether it's the gift diplomacy for medical preparedness around the world, it looks like there's the beginnings of an attempt to reframe the choice that's out there. And I think what you see that Chinese doing is talking less about closed or open systems and talking more about efficient systems. And that lends itself also very much towards a technology narrative, right? So it starts with medical preparedness and then it accelerates with technology. And I think what you see China doing is basically making the case for their version of efficiency. And again, we're still in the earliest stages of this crisis. And I think so much of how this plays out in the international system will depend on does the crisis last another six months? Does it last another year? Does it last two years? What does the long tail of fear look like? There's so many unknowns. And I think it's a really interesting time to have a presidential election in the U.S. because you're basically 
holding an election and asking the American people to vote for a leader and how they can handle a challenge and set of challenges, that's still very much ambiguous. Yeah, and it leads very nicely into a question I had. So even in my own profession in financial services, we've experienced over the last few weeks a real acceleration around technology, partly to cope with the pandemic, working from home, lockdown, as you say, Jared. And it's been really, really visible. And, and things like Zoom and Microsoft Team and WebEx conference calls have now become part of the common language that two months ago just were not talked about. Do you believe that that acceleration, that tech enablement is coming at the right pace, is being delivered in the right way? And is it working correctly for the evolution of the human race? Because as you alluded to already, there is elements of concerns whether it's open or closed, what's being tracked or whether it's for medical reasons, access through digital and tech enablement. Do you feel that's right for the human race and where we are today? And is it being utilized correctly on the political agenda? What I've always said about technology is technology is a set of tools that make us more efficient by connecting us to information, to each other, to actual resources. It saves us time. It allows us to multitask. It allows us to be omnipresent, all these different things, right? The appeal of efficiency is a powerful appeal. And my personal view has been that we as human beings have a lot of agency over when we intervene to basically decide that we want to separate ourselves from technology. And I think that for every human being, it's a different equilibrium. So for instance, there's ways that I'm comfortable allowing technology to make me more efficient. There's ways that I'm not. They're very personal choices, right? So despite being a tech guy, I don't like reading digital books. I don't like listening to audiobooks. I love a thick hardcover book and lugging it around the world. It's just a personal choice and it's a human intervention that I've made into technology, right? So, so I basically intervened and said, I want to preserve a more analog way of reading and that's my personal choice. I think what's been interesting about this whole experience is this moment has made us appreciate the way that technology almost creates a redundancy for the functionality of key aspects of society. Like, I don't know what would be going on with education right now if we didn't have the ability to do video chats. I look at my ability to run my organization remotely with the same level of efficiency, in some cases, even more. And I think that what is happening is when the dust settles, we're going to have a real conversation about what the future of the office looks like. And I don't think it's going to be a one size it's all model. I think that we're going to have a real conversation about the efficiencies of technology and the values of human contact. And it's going to be a formula where there's some instances where you basically decide this is where human contact is most important and most rewarding. You're going to have organizations where it's not monolithic, where there's going to be flexibility in terms of how members of the workforce can navigate their own work experience. I think it's going to be a really, really interesting time for the future of work. The other thing that I'll say is necessity drives innovation. Given what is likely to be a long duration of this crisis, I think we're going to see a lot of innovation around education, a lot of innovation around remote work. We're going to see a lot of innovation around how we collaborate remotely. We're going to see a lot of innovation around how we socially congregate without being able to do so closely. So I think that we're in an interesting time for the innovation agenda. And in many respects, if you look at a lot of innovation over the last 10 years, there was a lot of luxury innovation, right? We saw innovation in areas that were nice to have. So what we're seeing now is tremendous amounts of innovation where we desperately need it. I'll ask this question because it links to what you've just said, Gerard, and it has come up in previous podcasts that we've had. Because in many ways, technology removes all the barriers that we talked about earlier. It doesn't allow you to be focused just on your national agenda. It's a very international solution. 
and we've seen that no more so than you've alluded to already through the pandemic that we've just had. Do you believe on technology how it will be utilised going forward? Do you think we'll see cultural differences? Do you think we'll see generational differences? Because it has come up in the past in conversation that how generations view technology and its innovation and its advancements are perceived differently. Is that something you see and you're aware of or do you have an opinion on it? I think the way generations think about technology is very much defined by the platforms that characterize their technology experience, right? So I'm 38. My generation was the generation that started with instant messaging and texting and experienced the explosion of social media when we were going through our higher education and beyond. And so that defined my generation. Then you look at a younger generation, which they're experiencing it through a different set of platforms like Snap and TikTok and so forth. So I think those will be attributes for that generation. I think a really interesting question going back to the US and China is, if you look at 5G as an example, what do we know about 5G? 5G allows you to transport unprecedented amounts of data at unprecedented speed with almost no latency and literally connect millions and millions of devices at the same time. That's gonna unlock a whole new chapter of innovation and platforms that we can't even imagine right now. What happens when entire generations of young people are split, some on Chinese platforms, some on American platforms? We're already seeing that right now with TikTok as an example, right? You have Snap and you have TikTok. I think the question you have to ask about generation to generation is your answer is best found in the attributes of the platforms that dominate their digital experience. Great. Now, your organization, Gerard Jigsaw, you identify emerging technology threats that destabilize the internet and our society generally. Now, cyber threat is something in banking and across many sectors and professions is something that's very alive today and concerns many of our listeners. What are you seeing evolve and how do we all protect ourselves against this threat? Yeah, I still think that the number one vulnerability of any organization is an individual who by virtue of not being properly trained in good cyber hygiene or making an unforced error, ends up creating a vulnerability for the organization. Human error is still one of the biggest vulnerabilities for a company. What you see in the cybersecurity space right now is how do you basically remove the impact of human error, right? So for instance, whether that's anti-phishing tools where if you type your password somewhere other than where you're supposed to, it forces you to change it, security keys so that you can't see the short codes that are being generated for your two-factor authentication. So that's one area where we're seeing the reduction of risks associated with human error. What I find fascinating about cybersecurity is, and it's particularly interesting in a moment of this global pandemic, human beings will go to extraordinary lengths to inconvenience themselves when it comes to their physical health, but they will rarely engage in the slightest inconvenience when it comes to their digital well-being, right? Whether that's not bothering to upgrade their software because it's going to take 20 minutes or it's too complicated to set up a security key or it's just easier to use the same password or they don't set up two-factor authentication or they're using the wrong browser or they're clicking on links without thinking about who sent them that link, all these basic things. And it's confusing to me because how healthy we are as human beings is an aggregate of our physical and our digital well-being. And we're very good at physically taking care of ourselves, and we're less good at taking digitally care of ourselves. One silver lining of an otherwise very difficult chapter is, at least in my lifetime, this is the period of time where we've all been most worried about our physical health and most reliant 
on doing all things digital. If ever there was an opportunity to think holistically about our health as a physical and digital experience, right, a two-front experience, it would be right now. And do you feel there's an obligation that governments need to think about their education system from grassroots up in relation to this? Because many governments have put a lot of time and attention into the physical health and well-being of the young people in the nations. Do you think there's something that has to be done around about the education system that young people are learning earlier and understanding more the threats of cyber security? Eric and I, when we wrote New Digital Age, we argued that as kids come online younger and faster than in any other time in history, the things that they do and say online will far outpace their physical maturation process, let alone their understanding of cyber vulnerabilities. And so all I can do is answer that by reflecting on my own experience. If I was an elementary school kid today or a middle school kid today or lower school, depending on how it's described in a different country, We have a long tradition in schools of teaching kids not to use drugs and practice safe sex and not engage in risky behavior. It seems to me that digital hygiene and digital health are going to have to be taught at an even younger age than all of those things. It's astonishing how quickly kids already, even before COVID-19, were coming online. But what's happening is we're accelerating the screen time to a younger age out of necessity now. And so I think that this is particularly important. Great, good. And finally, Gerard, disinformation or indeed fake news have become a significant topic in politics. My question is, is it all bad or do you believe it stimulated a good and new debate and are given a level of scrutiny of our policymakers that didn't exist beforehand? I often get asked with regards to the book that Eric Schmidt and I wrote, what do you think the biggest thing is that you didn't quite get right? And while we talked about marketing wars between countries that basically engage in a skirmish and then they retroactively market the blame on one side or another. We really didn't predict the extent of the disinformation problem. Furthermore, what we didn't anticipate is the marriage between traditional hacking of systems and infrastructure. So let's call it traditional cyber attacks and these growing efforts designed to hack the discourse and the conversation. Part of the reason disinformation as a tactic for any adversary is so effective is It's not a monolithic term. Disinformation is everything from completely manufactured information to the amplification of organic conspiracy theories. It's very hard to attribute or measure the damage associated with a disinformation attack. It's often based on a kernel of truth that's then exaggerated or extrapolated. So I think that if I look at the future of disinformation, I think that there's basically two problems that have to be navigated. The first has to do with, can you detect disinformation, which is a technology question, an algorithmic question, right? And that's everything from like, can you detect whether or not a video has been distorted? Can you detect whether or not a particular site is a completely manufactured one, an image has been doctored, all those things. The second question I think is a harder one, which is a sociological question, which is if you can detect whether or not information has been falsified or distorted, how do you then convey that information to individuals in ways that change their behavior? And that sociological and behavioral psychology aspect of the disinformation problem is extremely difficult, right? It's something that human beings have grappled with for centuries. And I think that the answer here is you almost need like a coalition of technology policymakers, subject matter experts, and behavioral psychologists and sociologists to understand all the different components of disinformation. Gerard, great. We could speak to you for an awful lot longer, but I'm very conscious of time. Thank you very much for today. That's been fabulous. And 
please stay healthy and safe in the coming weeks and months and I hope we get the chance to speak again soon. Thank you very much. That's all for this edition of Julius Baer's True Connections podcast. Thank you for listening and please do keep in touch with us on Twitter, LinkedIn and at juliusbear.com. Thank you.